I want to just kick off, and it was something Bill Johnson said that really impacted me. He said, when you look at the Israelites, they gathered around the presence of God, the tabernacle of Moses where the Ark of the Covenant was. They were gathering around the presence. And today, we don't want to come and just gather around a sermon, but we want to gather around the living Word of God, that the Holy Spirit would just allow us to encounter Him afresh through this Word. Because even as Jesus said, it's this Word that points to me, because in me you have life. And so I just trust as we talk around the presence of God and what that means to us today, that there'll be something of encountering Him afresh, even as we spend some time in the Word. So I want to share today, even as we've had a weekend of this, what it means to host the presence of God what that looks like individually and corporately as a house, uh, what that means for the nation, uh, what it means for our generations. There's so much significance and overflow and um, springing out of that place, wells that spring out of it, that uh, we're going to spend a little bit of time there. I love when you look at this, King David wrote in Psalm 27 verse 4, he said, one thing I ask from the Lord, and this only do I seek, this one thing, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. He had this desire in his heart. But as we look here, we're gonna see an unusual circumstance where God answers the cry of David's heart and he does it with a man named Obed-Edom. And it's gonna teach us a few things about how we engage with the presence of God. Because in this moment, as we see it unfolding, 2 Samuel chapter six, we see that something happens with the presence of God where David withdraws. It says in verse 8, if you're reading in the message, that the, the presence of God actually got too hot to handle. And there was a moment where he withdrew. He had had um, the right intentions in his heart, but he, he wasn't seeking after, he wasn't engaging with the presence of God in a way that was honoring to God. He had kind of let that slip and had grown familiar. And so something shifted in that. And uh, his desire, as I say, was good. He wanted to bring the ark of God's covenant into the midst of the people, God's presence into the midst of the Israelites so that they could praise and worship. But unfortunately, and here's the key, unfortunately, uh, what David did is he tried to do this according to the ways of the world rather than the ways of God's word. He tried to transport and carry the presence of God according to the ways of the world rather than the ways of God's word. And we see that what I mean by that is just a, a bit earlier, we see that the, the ark had been captured. We're going to touch on this in a moment. The ark of the covenant had been captured and had gone off and the Philistines had taken it. And uh, when they had had enough of it, we'll see why, and sent the ark back, they sent it on a cart. It wasn't God's prescribed way to, to transport the, his presence, to carry his presence, but they sent it on this ark. And when David came to get the, the, the ark of the covenant, sorry, they sent it on this cart. And when David came to get the the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of his, God's presence, he thought, well, this is a quick way to do it. Let's keep it on the cart and transport it on the, on the cart. And so what he did was he, he followed the ways of the world rather than God's ways. We need to be careful that we don't see a way that the world's doing it and think this looks quicker, this looks easier, this looks flashier. I can get familiar with this. We can make it happen at a much quicker rate. We need to make sure we don't get caught up and enamored with the ways of the world, that we forget the reverence the transcendency of what it means to be transformed and engaging with the presence of God. We need to make sure that doesn't happen because as a result of that happening and David doing it the wrong way, the world's way, as a result, one well-intentioned young man who had been with David um, carrying the Ark of the Covenant in this cart, one, one young man loses his life. 
When we start to try and engage with God, His presence, and do it in the ways of the world, people lose their life. Rather, let's put it in New Testament terms, people aren't finding life in God because they're hitting worldly paraphernalia rather than engaging the power, the person, the presence of who God is. And so we want to strip that away, and we want to do it according to the way that God has said we should, according to His principles and His promises. And so we see that there's a history to this passage. The Ark of the Covenant, it's also called the Ark of His Presence. It was supposed to be the dwelling place, in a sense, the throne of God, where He tabernacled in the midst of His people in the tabernacle of Moses. The Ark was a symbol of presence. It was a symbol of glory, of God's voice, of God's power, of God's favor, of God's protection and His victory in warfare. It was central to the worship of Israel. And we see something happens. Uh, Israel starts to go a different way, as we see with um, Eli and his sons, who were meant to, to uh, be the ones who did the temple worship and looked after the ark. And we see that they get caught up in ways of wickedness. And what happens is God sees this, and he allows the Philistines to come and to capture the ark. It's an amazing thought. How can the glory and the presence of God be captured? And yet the Philistines have seen this as the, the power of God and the Israelites, they've seen the victories that have been borne out as the Israelites carried the Ark of the Covenant, the presence of God. And so they take this Ark and they think they've got a great victory. And what they do, they think they've captured the glory, the presence of God, and they, they take the Ark and they take it to one of their high places of worship. It was to um, an Ashdod, and it was the house of Dagon, who was one of their gods, the god for them in that day. And so what they do is they take the Ark of the Covenant, and they put it next to Dagon to show him the victory they had got. And they close the door, and all seems great, except the next morning they come in, and Dagon has fallen face down before the Ark of the Presence. It was a little bit nerve-wracking for them, so they quickly stood him back up, shut the doors, came in the next day thinking they'd find a better scene. Unfortunately, once again, Dagon has fallen face down before the presence, the Ark of the Covenant, and his head has been cut off and his hands have been cut off. A little bit intimidating. They think we're not winning this one. Let's get rid of the Ark. And so they send the Ark off to uh, another Philistine camp called Gath, which is destroyed. So then they think, well, let's send it off to Ekron, another Philistine camp, which is destroyed. So then they think, well, let's send it back to the Israelites. And so they do so, but the Israelites seeing a cart carrying the Ark of the Covenant, the presence of God, they cannot believe it. Here, there's just this cart is coming. The Philistines weren't near it. They were terrified. And so the, these Israelites see it, and it says they go and they open up once again, not uh, being familiar with the presence of God, and they open it up, and it says that 50,000 men died in a moment. And so then they, they say, well, let the, the ark continue, and they send it up to the house of Abinadab, but the, men, the, the, the people were a bit afraid and withdrew, and it says that even though they, Abinadab and his household took the ark and he put one of his sons over it, it's not mention of any engagement or what they did with it, nor did their house prosper in that time. But David comes and he brings 30,000 men with him and he comes to carry the Ark of the Covenant, the presence, back so that it could be in the center of the people. He brought singers and musicians and uh, the sons of Abinadab are, um, as I mentioned, are driving this cart and they've got the Ark of the Covenant in and it gets to a moment where they hit a bit of unstable ground and this young man Uzzah, one of Abinadab's sons, stretches out his hand to steady the Ark and he touches it and as I mentioned, he loses his life. And David at this point, thinking the presence of God is too hot to handle, thinks, I'm going to withdraw. I'm going to pull back. God, how could you do this? I'm discouraged. And so he, he allows a detour. 
There's a detour in his fight. Don't let fear creep in and allow a detour in your faith from getting you where you're meant to be getting. He allows a detour to take place and he takes the ark to Obed-Edom's house. And Obed-Edom is just a man who uh, is someone who makes space for God in his life. I, I, I wanna encourage you in this, that sometimes God allows for detours to take you out of worldly procession because he's got a heavenly agenda and appointment for you. We've gotta make space for that heavenly detour to take place, a divine detour, a divine interruption. You see, everyone else had the eye on Jerusalem, but God had his eye on a man of faith who was gonna make space and prize his presence. God loves it when we've got a pursuit in our heart for his presence. He will cause a detour. He will take us out of the world's ways and procession because that starts to draw on and attract the attention of heaven and we become pivotal in heaven's agenda, as I've said. So God has a heart for the man who has a heart for his presence. And so we see this taking place and I'm gonna jump to verse 10. David, as I say, he's, um, he's felt discouraged and there's been the detour to Obed-Edom's house. Verse 10. He was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Let me jump back. The Philistines had captured the ark, the presence, the glory of God. They had learned a lesson. You cannot capture the presence of glory of God. You can only be captivated by it. And David isn't in this place yet. There's been a fear in his heart where he's not actually captivated by God's presence. Rather, he's creating a little bit of space. He wasn't willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite for three months. And the Lord blessed him and his entire household. Verse 12. Now, King David was told, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. He's blessed everything he has because of the ark of God, because of the presence of God. So David went to bring up the ark of God. Now, suddenly he's captivated again. With the, suddenly this looks, this looks like something to pursue. So David went to bring up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. I love that line. What happens when we host the presence of God? What happens as we look in the story as Obed-Edom hosts the presence of God? I want us to just see a few things here. You see, Obed-Edom opened the gate and allowed the presence of God, the Ark of the Covenant, to be brought in. He allowed David to bring it in, the manifest presence of God to come into his house. And it should be an inspiration for us today to allow the same thing in terms of our lives and our families and our households in this church. See, God loves to make detours into our life. You know, we might have other plans and we might have other agendas, but he loves to make a detour into your life where he opens up a whole new future for you and for me, unexpected, unearned. It's a total grace visitation. God loves to just break in. He breaks in from the side often. My dad used to speak about being surprised by the goodness of God, that he sets, sets up ambushes of his goodness. You know what that means? It doesn't come front on. It, it might be, I've got this plan for my life. I'm going there. I can see what's gonna happen. I'm hoping that that would happen and I'm on the journey and then there's an ambush. I'm broadsided by the goodness of God. Aren't you up for a little bit of that? I'm, I'm up for some to be surprised by the goodness of God because he does things his way. He doesn't do them our way. You see, I, I, I love this. He's not a respecter of persons, but he is a respecter of his principles. And as we start to pursue his presence, 
We'll see later his blessing starts to pursue us. So when we host the presence of God, we see personal blessing, point number one. We see personal blessing on property and on his property and his household. 2 Samuel 6.11. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite for three months, and the Lord blessed him and his entire household. You see, when he hosted God's presence, everything and everyone in his life experienced the touch of God's hand, God's blessing, favor, goodness, and promises breaking out in and through their lives. Everything experienced that. The Bible doesn't tell us, and here's the, the, the encouragement for me, the Bible doesn't tell us that Obed-Edom did anything extra to experience the blessing of God. What does it say here? He opened up his house so that the presence of God could come in and everything and anything was blessed. He did nothing extra to get blessed. He didn't do any extra praying because the presence of God was in his house. He didn't do any extra work to try and earn God's favor. He didn't try and observe any extra religious disciplines and rites and procedures to try and to invoke more of the favor of God. No, he didn't do that. He just actually allowed the presence of God in and the blessing was an outworking. Sometimes we overcomplicate it. You see, the only thing he did was host God's presence. And for us today, the only thing that we do is we realize the presence that's available because Jesus has made a way through his shed blood that we can know what it means to have the Holy Spirit come and dwell in us, that we can know what it means to have Christ in us, the hope of glory, that we can know what it means to be carriers of the presence of God. We get to know what that looks like and what that feels like, and we get to experience that because of what Jesus has done. And we can know all of the favor, all of the blessing, all of the goodness, all of the promise of heaven are not only towards us, but they are attracted to us because of who Jesus is in us. It's a beautiful encouragement. I'm a lot more encouraged than you seem to be at that point right now. But it's because Jesus, because of what Jesus has done for us, that uh, the picture is that on the mercy seat, so you've got this wooden box covered in gold. In it, it's got the, the manna, it's got the stone tablets, it's got um, the budding rod of Aaron, and on it, it's got this mercy seat, and it's got these two angels, golden angels with their wings touching above the mercy seat. And, and the way it, uh, it, it unfolded was when the blood was put on the mercy seat, it was um, the mercy of God, and there was a picture of Jesus, and the presence of God would rest there. If you've accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, been washed by his blood, you get to be a carrier of the presence of God, the power of God. It's a beautiful picture. Let me go to the second thing that happens as we host the presence of God. Oh, man, I love this one. It's worth, it's worth a powerful pause. When we host the presence of God, the rumor of God's goodness gets out. The rumor of God's goodness gets out. 2 Samuel 6 verse 12. Now King David was told, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. You see, the stories of what God is doing with Obed-Edom has started to spill out. They started to be passed around. They started to be bandied around. The people are starting to gossip about the goodness of God. I love that. There's something worth telling. You know, we, we live in a day and an age where Gossip seems to be quite rampant. Maybe, maybe you've experienced it. I've, I've actually gone beyond and participated in it a little bit. And I can cover it well, you know. You know do you know that person? I just love that person. They, they are a quality person. Uh, they, they, they're just such, they're a good person. But you know, I've got, I've got these concerns. 
you know, you, you know the blessing on their life. Is it gonna have longevity to it? Are they gonna be able to sustain it? Isn't it gonna to cause too much pride in their heart? And we start to, to slip into this sort of um, the danger, but there's something different when we see the goodness of God so much so that we start to gossip of goodness rather than criticism, and we start to celebrate it, which enables us to come through into the breakthrough of it rather than to be withholding and to be nervous of what's happening there. T.D. Jake says it this way, and I love it. Have I gone way beyond where I should have? Yes, I have. I'll come back to what T.D. Jake says. <laughs> but, but there's this rumor of, of God's goodness that gets out. And I was reading a blog by um, Ignite Hope, uh, Steve Backland, who shared here before, and he was just writing on, on what does God's goodness look like? What did the neighbors see? I mean, what was being said and seen and what was tangible and visible and being manifested in Obed-Edom and his family and his livestock and his home's life that the news started to spread within three months, not only to his neighbors, but through the whole nation of Israel, so much so that it got through the king's ears. What were they seeing? Don't you wonder that? What were the neighbors seeing? Well, let me tell you, uh, in today's terms, they were seeing this. This is just picking out some of what uh, the blessing of God looks like. Deuteronomy 28, go and read it for yourself and putting it into today's language. They were seeing relational healing and joy in family. They were seeing faces glowing with God's glory. They were seeing vegetation thriving. They were seeing profound wisdom and operation. They were seeing deep intimacy with the Lord, confidence, peace, supernatural power, success in everything they did, unusual luck. We don't believe in luck, but I'm just saying this is what it looked like to them. Financial prosperity. They were seeing favor, physical vitality. They were seeing protection and the ability to create blessing wherever Obed-Edom went. Isn't that a beautiful description? They were seeing these things, even as we've spoken about earlier, health, fruitfulness, prosperity, freedom from oppression. And I love this because why didn't I get to my point? The rumor of God's goodness gets out. One moment. Man, I jumped a whole point ahead. Hang on to that. It's going to be awesome when we get there. T.D. Jakes. Don't just think T.D. Jakes now the whole rest of the time I'm talking. So, so we get an idea of God's blessing. It says this in Proverbs 26 verse 2. Molly, you're talking about the curse. Curses are powerful, but I want to say that blessing destroys the power of every curse. The blessing we have in Christ. Proverbs 26 verse 2, it says this, like a flitting sparrow, like a flying swallow, so a curse without cause shall not alight. You need to start seeing where there have been some curses coming at you that have no authority and right to be alighting upon you, and you need to start brushing those things off, those birds of the air that try and land there. But here's the alternative. A blessing with cause will alight. By pursuing God's presence, we are providing a wide landing strip for the blessing of God to come and rest upon us. And when you start to pursue God's presence, it's like when you see a plane coming in at night and there's no other light, so they have to line up, light up the, the, the landing strip and there are those like strobe things going and everyone's waving those lights. When you start to pursue God's presence, it's like that, that runway on, on your head where the blessings of God wanna come in the light. We need to be stirring up that desire for his presence because the beauty is this, as we see with Obed Edom. Obed Edom wasn't chasing the blessing of God. He was hosting the presence of God. The blessing of God was pursuing him. When we pursue the presence of God, the promises and the blessing of God starts to pursue us. There's this shift taking place. So when we host God's presence, people around us notice the difference and the word of God's goodness starts to be gossiped about. It's a good, a good thing to be sharing. When we host the presence of God, 
Just turn to someone next to you and, and just encourage them with it. Just, um, what, let, let's just get you to read the point to them. The room, we want to host God's presence so the rumor of his goodness gets out. Say that to someone. Let's host God's presence so the rumor of his goodness gets out. Sorry, I didn't want to leave that point. It was so good. I wanted to just, I wanted to encamp around that point for a bit, but Okay. When we host the presence, oh, this is also a good point. Man, there's some good points here. When we host the presence of God, other people get hungry for God. When we host his presence, other people. So when King David heard the reports of God's blessing on Obed-Edom's life and property, he became hungry for the presence of God. You know that he, was, he wasn't satisfied and hungering after God's presence, but when he saw what was happening in Obed-Edom's life, a hunger started to arise in him once again. How hungry are you for the presence of God? How thirsty are you? See, there's a danger as men and women of God that we grow familiar and we become accustomed to lack because that's how we've been operating. You know, even in a fast, you get to a point, and I, I don't know if any of you fast for a certain amount of time, I got to a point where it was hard for me to start eating again. My dad had been sick, I think I fasted 21 days, wasn't too long, but I got to a point where I had to force myself to eat again, because I had grown accustomed to, um, to, to absence. And sometimes we can be accustomed to, to, that, uh, to being famished, and we, we lose our ability to hunger after God. Sometimes we can be in that place where we're not thirsting after him. Uh, a, a leader from Australia put it this way because they journaled and saw it in their own life. They wrote, I've come to realize that the real tragedy in the church is not spiritual famine. The real tragedy in the church is not spiritual famine. It is famine without hunger and dryness without thirst. That is the tragedy. I want to say this. We think the tragedy is hunger. It's not hunger. Hunger is a gift. Thirsting is a gift. That's why in Matthew 5 verse 6 it said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. If you're hungering, if you're thirsting, you are positioned for blessing because as we start to hunger and thirst of the presence of God and His righteousness, we will be filled. It's the promise of God. Why do I say be hungry for God? Why is it a gift? Because when you're not hungry and you're accustomed to lack, you can rest in that place of lack and the absence of His presence. But when you're hungry, hunger in itself puts you into an active state when you start to pursue and go after that thing that you desire. It starts to cause something to arise in you like me in the midnight hour when the chocolate calls out downstairs in the drawer and I've got to get up and it's cold, but I walk there because I'm in an active state that I need my my slab of chocolate. <laughs> Hungering is a gift. See, David had lost it. But he saw what was happening in Obed-Edom's life and he started to be captivated with the glory and presence of God again. And there was a hunger and a thirst that was provoked in his heart that didn't allow him just rest uh, in his surroundings, in his palatial treatment, but it made him go and pursue God's presence and said, I'm gonna do this again. I was detoured last time, but I'm gonna give it another go. I'm gonna get up and I'm gonna take hold of God for that which he's taken hold of me. I wanna encourage some of us, we need to get stirred and provoked in our hearts for the presence of God once again. And it provokes him and causes a hunger in his life for him to see how am I meant to be engaging and caring and interacting with the presence of God and all transparency and transcendency so that I might be transformed. Not that it can serve me, but that I can come into alignment and agreement to be one who can host God's presence. 
So you know this is a, a key point for us. You know you are hosting the presence of God when people around you get hungry and thirsty and start to seek His presence as well. You know that you are hosting the presence of God when your lifestyle starts to provoke a hunger and thirst in others' hearts to pursue the presence of God as well. And when we start to tell the stories and the testimonies, it creates a chain reaction and people see what's possible in, in our lives as we walk and journey with God and they, they, they desire that as well. It's not that Facebook sort of desiring, like, oh man, I wish I could live their life or I wish I could be married to their spouse or I wish that I could have their children or I wish that I could have their job. It's not that sort of shallow, superficial facade of what life should look like, but there's a vitality and a rigor and a robustness and there's a depth that provokes this hunger and it's a longing for and it carries sustenance and sustainability and longevity because it is born by the very spiritual vitality of heaven. And I made that up right there. Sounded good to me. When we host the presence of God, we see that not only do our immediate family get changed, but we have a godly heritage. We have a godly heritage. My mom shared that even in terms of uh, that uh, at that lake, that picture that she had at the presence of God and seeing my, my grandfather's. Um, who was it? My dad. Your dad. Uh, grandpa and great-grandpa uh, by the lake. And there's something there that when we encounter the presence of God, it doesn't just shift us, but it shifts our generations. We see here that Obed-Edom, he gets a choice. You know, he's been hosting the presence of God for three months. That means every day he's had the presence of God in his house. 24-7, um, he's got to engage with the presence of God. No one else has been able to do that before. Up to that point, the priests were only able to go in like an hour, one day a year, Yom Kippur, where they would go into the holies and, of holies and engage with the presence of God. But he's had the presence of God in his home for three months, engaging, living, functioning, experiencing, receiving of God. God's presence. I want to say you cannot do that without it marking you. And so he's got a choice. He's seen the, the blessing that's come to his household, and now David is coming to take the presence of God. And he doesn't get protective. He doesn't get restrictive. He doesn't get jealous. He doesn't try and say it's mine. He's got a choice, though. Is he going to go with God's presence? He realizes it's bigger with him than him. He doesn't want to just keep God's presence for himself. He's got an understanding of what hosting the presence of God means. And so he allows David to come and collect it. But what does he do? Because he's got a choice. Either he can live in the abundance that he's had from hosting the presence and the blessing upon him, or he can choose to follow the ark of the covenant of God. Let me say this. When the presence of God has you, you will give up anything to be in the presence of God. He wasn't just so caught up in wanting to tell the testimonies of when the, the ark of God was here and these are the blessings that's come about. He was one that pursued the presence of God, didn't just live in the yesterdays and the yesteryears of what God had done. And so he is motivated by love because the presence of God changes your motives and he pursues the presence of God and leaves everything out that must have seemed great. All the blessings that attracted the attention of everyone else, he said, I'm leaving leaving the blessing for the presence. 
and he pursues the presence of God, and it says he becomes a gatekeeper, a musician, and a doorkeeper in the house of God before the presence, before the presence of the ark. But not only him, it says that he receives, in doing that, more blessing and promotion. He has eight sons. His whole family become those who serve the presence of God. It's a beautiful thing. That's why that scripture says, better is one day in your courts Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tent or in the goodness or in the lavishness of what the wicked have. He didn't want to live in just the, can you remember when the ark stayed with us? He wanted to pursue at all costs. There was a hungering in his heart to pursue the things of God. And, and when we host the presence of God, here is the beauty. A nation is brought to worship. A nation is brought to worship. What does that look like for us here in Durban, South Africa? What does it look like for a nation to be brought to worship? What does it look like when we say, there's no hope out there? I want to say, if you're a man or woman of faith, I cannot be saying it. I probably said it previously, maybe just yesterday. But if we're a man and woman of faith, we cannot say there's no hope for our nation and then turn around and believe we're going to host the presence of God in our church and our life and our family. Because if we are hosting the presence of God, just us in our household, His blessing is so evident, it will provoke a whole nation. A whole nation to arrive on the doorstep to receive what God is doing. And so King David and the entire house of Israel, previously 30,000, this time the entire house of Israel come to say this blessing of hosting the presence, it's for all of us. And the whole nation arrive to carry the presence of God. But David does it a different way. He says, we're not going to have it set up that once a year, one man gets to engage with the presence of God. There's such a hunger in my heart. We've seen such blessing. I'm going to set up this tent where people can come. And when you read it, it says that, let me just get to that point. It was David brought back the ark to Jerusalem and he set up the special tent for extravagant, as we did yesterday, day and night worship to celebrate the fact that God's presence was dwelling amongst the people. And so he causes this atmosphere where people can come and worship 24-7 prayer and praise. Because when you host God's presence, it creates a chain reaction that doesn't just impact your family and your household and your church and your region, but your nation as well. So here's the beauty. How do we host the presence of God? Well, it's not about performance. It's not about just following a pres prescribed set of rules. It's not just doing the right things. But it's having God at the center the presence of God in the center of everything you do. It means this, I don't say God is first and foremost in my life, so he's first on my checklist, and I spend my 30 minutes, or if I'm really uh, strong in my religious obedience and discipline, an hour, two hours, and three hours, and then I put him aside and go do all things that are second, third, and fourth. No, it's saying this, I want God in the center. I want him in the center of my relationship with my wife. I want him in the center of my parenting. I want him in the center of my spirituality. I want him in the center of my friendships. I want him in the center of my workplace. I want him to be central in everything because I want to carry his presence because I don't want his presence just to bless checklist point number one. I want his blessing to pour out over every aspect of who I am, what I touch and what I'm engaged with. It's this Latin phrase, coram Deo, which means to live before the face of God, to live your life in the presence of God under the authority of God and to the glory of God. And so Obed-Edom, how did he host the presence? He made room for the presence of God to be central in his home and in his life. So let me ask this question. What would happen if we believed ourselves to be living ox carrying the manifest presence of God? 
What does it look like to know that you and me get to carry the presence of God? What does that look like in your family, your friendships, your relationships, your workplace? What does it look like when we realize that we're called to be gatekeepers and that every go, everywhere that we occupy, be that, as I've mentioned, your workplace, your home, whatever situation, every place that you occupy, you get to open the gates of his presence in that place. Let me declare something over you from the Passion Translation, Psalm 24, 7 to 9. Here's my declaration. I'm declaring this over you. So wake up, you living gateways. Lift up your heads, you ageless doors of destiny. Welcome the King of glory, for he is about to come through you. Isn't that a beautiful scripture? Let me read it again. So wake up, you living gateways. You get to be the gateway that allows his presence in and through your life. Lift up your heads, you ageless doors of destiny. Welcome the King of glory, for he is about to come through you. All you've been thinking about is T.D. Jakes, but I just want to say I forgot where that was. Let me try to remember. Otherwise, you won't hear anything more that I say. Yeah, T.D. Jakes, Jakes, I heard him speaking about the neighborhood. It's when you, you get so caught up with what you hear happening in the neighborhood that you think, as I was saying, that there's not enough for me. And you're thinking, God, how can you do it there? Aren't you gonna do it here? Why are you doing this in my neighbor's life? And I loved what he said. He said, when you start seeing God, see God doing something in your neighbor's life and in your neighborhood, get excited because he is moving in your neighborhood and he could very soon arrive at your house as well. So we wanna celebrate what God is doing in our neighbor's lives. But here, uh, as we host the presence, I want to say three things. What does it look like for me to host the presence? What does it look like for that? David had to do three things. Maybe you realize you've been rerouted. David had to change three things in his life. He had to change his plan because the first time it didn't work. He'd be doing it the world's way. And he had to change his plan to come in accordance with God's word. Here's the first thing in terms of changing your plan. He had to realize this, that God never wanted to dwell on the back of the cart. He wanted to dwell on the shoulders of his priests. You've got to change your plan. The second thing is this, you've got to change your pace. See, when they carried the presence of God on their shoulders, it says that they started to measure out their paces and every few paces they would stop and they would do a sacrifice and they would worship God. When you are carrying the presence of God on your shoulders, you've got to change your pace to be in in, um, step with what God's doing with what he's saying. The beauty is this, is when you you need to change your pace and and, um, I remember Bill Johnson saying about when uh, Jesus came out of the water and it impacted me so much that the Holy Spirit uh, descended on him like a dove and alighted on his shoulder and abided on him. And he was just bringing this encouragement. When the presence of God, like a dove, rests on your shoulder, it changes the way that you walk if you want him to continue to abide. You need to change your pace if you're carrying the presence of God. And then the third point I want to say is this. You need to change your position. You see, when David first went, he went with 30,000 men and it had the sons of Abinadab leading the cart and there was a procession and there was some praise and there were some songs and there were some various other things. And, and uh, we know that they had a detour, a change moment. 
But here he had to change his position. When he comes back for the presence of God, he comes back with the whole nation of Israel. It wasn't just a few, but this time he wasn't allowing anyone else to lead. He put himself first and foremost. He was on the front. He was leading. He had changed his plan, changed his pace, changed his position, and it said he rejoiced. He didn't just rejoice like he had previously. It says in the New King James, the ESV, and any of those ones you read, it only has this in, in this portion, the second time. It says he rejoiced and he danced with all of his might. It says he whirled around, he started to strip off everything that restricted him, even so much so that it, is, it embarrassed his wife, but I want to say this, it brought joy to the heart of God. You've got to change your position. I'm not wanting to, I'm not wanting to stir up emotion, I'm wanting to provoke hunger. I'm wanting to provoke in a, a thirst once again, what does it look like for us to host the presence of God as a family, as individuals, as a church, as a household?